Well, good morning. Um, we are starting a new series uh, today that will take us through the summer, um, Seven Letters to the Seven Churches. So this will be our series for the next eight weeks. Um, we will uh, look at each letter, and uh, that's seven weeks. And then we are going to conclude uh, with a final kind of uh, overview, if you will, but also just a... Um, sorry, I just get my watch all set up here. Um, what, what we're going to do, we read chap, all of chapter one today and then the letter to Ephesus. Uh, I just want to highlight the, the beginning of chapter one just to kind of set us up. And then on week eight, we're going to come back to chapter one and we're going to um, just really take a look uh, at Jesus uh, as he's described there. We're going to get little snippets and snapshots of him. Um, each of these letters kind of draw from the description of Jesus in chapter one. Um, but the last week, we're just going to look at Jesus uh, square in the face and uh, hopefully marvel at what we see um, there. Um, so really, let's um, get started in some ways. Uh, what I want us to look at today is uh, one of the major themes of the entire book of Revelation, but particularly in the letters that we're going to look at today, is this idea of overcoming. Um, in, in the Greek, it's, it's the word nikeo. It's where we get our... Uh, modern word Nike from. Um, anybody wearing Nikes today? Rachel's wearing Nikes. You've got your overcomer shoes on uh, in that way. And it was this kind of like athletic or military term um, that meant to conquer or to be victorious, uh, to overcome uh, in this way. And this is what Jesus is wanting his churches to do. He's wanting them to be victorious. He's wanting them to overcome he says, I want you to be a conqueror. And how we do that is being united to Jesus, who is the ultimate overcomer, right? We see this in John chapter 16. He is the one who triumphed over Satan. He is the one who triumphs over sin and death, who now sits at the Father's right hand and will come again as the King of Kings, as we see later on in the book of Revelation. Uh, we're hoping to come back. We're just doing the, the first few chapters of Revelation um, this summer. We'll come back and hopefully finish the book um, later on at some other time. Um, but most significantly, this idea of conquering, it appears 26 times, this, this word in the New Testament, 21 of those um, times John uses, who's the author of this book. 15 of those are in the book of Revelation. And so this is a significant kind of um, theme that, that overcomes. It's in Christ that we overcome particular trials and temptations. And this is what we're going to look at in the coming weeks. What kind of trials and temptations were they facing? What were they up against? And again, we'll look at these in details. But in summary, we could just say they were facing the trial of persecution. A lot of these churches were being persecuted at the time. It was the temptation of compromise, um, to, to give in, to not live distinctly Christian lives, to capitulate to the culture. And Jesus tells them, I'm the overcomer. And if you'll live like me, if you'll maybe even die like me, um, you can overcome too. And the message to these churches is really kind of a microcosm of the entire book of Revelation. If they will remain faithful, then each church is promised an eternal blessing. Um, and so let's just consider the very first part of Revelation 1 as we prepare to study the churches. We see this kind of prologue in the first three verses of chapter 1. Um, and a few observations that will help us as we move into this uh, summer series. Uh, the first thing that I want us to see is that the book of Revelation is an apocalyptic book. It's an apocalypse. We see that in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's an unveiling. It's an uncovering of what will soon take place, um, both in the short term 
and in the long term. And we get these series of visions um, that uncover these hidden truths about God's sovereign control of the future and how he'll bring about kind of um, the end of our kind of history as we know it now as he brings that to an end with the return of Christ. Um, And so how we think about the book of Revelation or how we view it is important, how we read it is important. It's a different type of, of literature um, than the Gospels or the uh, Epistles or even the Old Testament. Um, you get part of the book of Daniel, Revelation, is this kind of future uh, vision. Um, do you remember there was an advertisement a few years ago, um, and it featured a couple different scenes. One of them was, was uh, a young girl looking uh, 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 with her purse. She was carrying her purse around her shoulder, and there was this young man grabbing her shoulder. Um, and from that scene, it was kind of clear what was about to happen, right? It looked like he was about to steal her bag. She was under threat. He was going to rob her. And that was the first frame. But then there was a second picture, and it was the same picture, but it had zoomed out. It was a wide-angle shot that you could see a better picture of. And suddenly, you really saw what was going on. A bus was bearing down on her. She was blindly unaware of that. And the young man who was grabbing her wasn't trying to steal her purse. He was trying to pull her out of the way. And underneath, there was the slogan, get the whole picture, the guardian. Um, It's this idea of like, you have to get the whole picture. You have to zoom back. You have to step back and see what's really going on. It's not just this little tight snapshot that's going to give you the full picture. And Revelation, in in some ways, gives us the big picture. It, It pulls us back. It zooms us out to see the world from a heavenly perspective. We see God's rule. We see God's rescue, God's sovereign triumph through Jesus in this book. Secondly, it's a prophecy. It's prophetic. It's prophetic apocalyptic. It doesn't just give a word about the future um, through symbolic language, but it calls the people of God accountable in light of that prophetic. So there's warning and comfort, um, much like the prophets of the Old Testament. And this warning and comfort come in light of the events in the immediate future and the distant future. This is important for us, isn't it? It's important for us to think about the future. Um, We, even in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was asking us to do that, right? He was giving us two choices, and he says, I want you to think about the future. I want you to think about the logical conclusions of where this path takes you. I want you to think about the, the foundation that you're building on, and think about the future, not just now and today, but when that storm comes. Revelation has many allusions to the prophets. It's a book really drenched in the Old Testament um, kind of imagery. We'll see that even in this chapter. And so this present, the present readers, that's us, are addressed. Um, even the churches that are here are being addressed with this kind of eschatological vision of the future to inspire their faithfulness to the end, right? So I think John explained this idea of eschatology. It's, it's theology that is concerned with the eschaton, Eschaton being the end of our human history as we know it, the end of this age. Um, So it's theology that's concerned with the end um, or the end times. Um, When I was a youth pastor um, back in the States, uh, I used to often say youth were only concerned with three things, or if we taught on three things, they would pack the place out. Um, Sex, the end times, and will there be sex in the end times? Those are really the only things that they were (laughs) concerned about. And those are things, I guess, that we can be concerned about. But it is important that we stop and we think about the future. Um, if you're like me, I think just the human condition is we're very myopic. We're very short-sighted. We really only think about the now, the immediate. 
maybe what's happening this week or this month, or we're trying to make plans, right? A lot of you are, are young, starting families. Okay, well, where should we live? Should we buy a house? These kind of things. But even that's really short-sighted in the grand scheme of life. Um, this last week, I had to do my first funeral for my uncle. He dropped dead at 61. Massive heart attack. Um, and again, it reminded me of that verse in Ecclesiastes, that it's better to go to a funeral than it is to a party. Because in those funerals, we're forced to think about the end. We're forced to think about how our mortality is real, how life is fleeting. And in some ways, this is what Revelation does. It makes us step back and think about our entire life and where we are and what we're building it upon. Um, In some ways, this is a great kind of bookend to our last series. We have Jesus starting his ministry with the Sermon on the Mount and his teachings. And now we hear from Jesus again, but this time it's Jesus Um, after his death, resurrection, and ascension, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he's giving us this message um, to the churches, and they're really for all of us. We see in verse 1, it's the revelation of or from Jesus Christ. He's the revealer. He is the one who is revealed. And the communication, the, the way it's communicated is stated. It's God the Father to Christ, to the angel of the church, to John, to the church, to us. And we see that all that John saw, 52 times John mentions his seeing of what he saw, these visions. And the first of seven blessings and revelations is to those who hear and keep the word. Um, those who, who read and who hear and who keep the word. And it gives us this time frame that the time is near. The nearness of the Lord's return is used throughout the New Testament to call believers to be faithful. To remember the end, Romans 13, Hebrews 10, James 5, 1 Peter 4, over and over and over. The fact that he is coming again should impact all of our life. It should impact our purity. It should impact our corporate encouragement together, our patience, our self-control, our prayer life. And so the study of um, eschatology, these things at the end, it shouldn't make us fanatical people. Um, right? Sometimes people get really obsessed and they try to crack these codes that they think they see and they get all fanatical about when the end is going to come. Do you know how many people have predicted the, of when Jesus will return? They're all in the past, <laughs> right? So we get really fanatical and crazy and like, oh, there's these blood moons that do this and that. And you're like, listen, what the book of Revelation should do is not make you fanatical. It should make you faithful. And this is what Jesus is calling us to, faithfulness. It shouldn't cause you to quit your job, head for the hills, hoard food, (laughs) pray for some kind of escape, but it should embolden us to live as Christ's witnesses now, here, in the life that you live, in the community that you live in, in the job that you have, in the families that we lead. We see um, that this is John, uh, this is the Apostle John. Um, at this point of time, he's more than likely an old man, more than likely, he is an old man, he's more than likely the last apostle alive. Um, John's the only apostle that wasn't martyred for his faith, but he's banished to the island of Patmos, and from there he's riding to these churches. It's about 65 kilometers south of Ephesus, an island off, off the kind of coast of modern-day Turkey, Greece. And this is where these seven, these are seven historical churches. These aren't just metaphor churches. These are churches that existed in real time and space. Uh, Southwest Asia Minor, now Turkey. Um, I'll show you some pictures as we go because I visited all seven of these sites a few months ago. Um, So they actually are real. You can actually go and visit them um, and see what's there. Um, 
here. And so we see this greeting to the churches um, by uh, the Apostle John, who's exiled during the reign of Domitian. This is um, kind of 81 to 96 AD. Um, If we can pull that map up, um, here we're going to see, you can see Patmos off the, uh, if you're like me, this map isn't great because I always think the dark bits are the water and the light bits of the land, but you have to flip that. It's the dark bits that are the land. So this is, this is the western edge of modern-day Turkey. You can see Patmos, uh, the island there. And then if you go to Ephesus and you kind of work clockwise, this would have been the postal route of the time. Um, so the letter comes from Patmos to Ephesus, and then it, it, the, these letters are circulated around to these churches. And he addresses each church in their specific context, Um, It was actually really great to go and actually see um, what is there and then to read these things, to learn about the history because the context, there are things that Jesus actually mentions that are actually specific to the context that they're in. Um, So you can kind of see the layout of these churches. These churches would have been familiar with each other, would have um, obviously communicated um, with each other that are here. And while these are historical churches, there's great wisdom and application for churches today and really throughout all of history. All these churches must heed what the Spirit says to the churches. So whilst there are specific people in real time and space that he's addressing with real issues, these are things that we are all meant to learn and uh, heed these warnings of. Seven's an important number in the book of Revelation. It does indicate kind of completion. It's a representative nature of the letters of these uh, historical churches. So that, that sets us up a little bit. Let's actually look to the church in Ephesus as we uh, begin our first one. And we could call Ephesus uh, the loveless, the loveless church. It's a church that had lost its love. Um, love for one another isn't, uh, lost for another isn't lost in a moment, but it's lost over time. It happens slowly, not quickly. It might even be happening without you realize it's happening. We're going to basically... Um, use the same outline. Actually, we have some pictures. You can actually see, I think here, just to give you, um, this is Ephesus today. Um, So you have these kind of colonnaded marble streets. Um, These colonnades on each side would have had um, market stalls, and basically it's the high street of of the day with, you know, Gap would have been there and all that other kind of stuff. But um, you can just go to the next one. Um, so you can see some of the kind of architecture that was there. It's a beautiful place, actually. It's, it's uh, phenomenal. Next one. Um, again, you can kind of get a layout of, of how things would have been. Um, some of these kind of pillars would have lined the streets. Those pillars would have had kind of tarps over them to give them shade for the vendors and things like that. Um, this is kind of the archway into the main part of the city um, that you walk through. Uh, this is the facade of uh, the library that would have been there. And then there's the kind of uh, one of the bathhouses behind it as well. Um, yeah, next one. This is uh, the amphitheater. Um, you can read about this amphitheater in Ephesus. This is where Paul was dragged into when they were starting a riot. This seats about 25,000 people. Um, and for two hours they chanted, great is Diana, great is Artemis. And they were ready to uh, kill Paul had they not got him out of there. Paul was ready to, like, preach the ball. <laughs> like, you're a madman. We got to get you out of here. Um, but you can kind of see that. And I think there might be, uh, yeah, go to the next one. 
This is an aerial shot of the amphitheater, and you can kind of see the road that goes down. And if you, if you can, you can kind of see this um, kind of open grassy area, and then there's a hill, and on the other side of that hill is the ocean, the Mediterranean that's there. The water used to come all the way up to the end of that street, um, and it, it was a harbor city, which is why it was such an important city. Um, but over time, the silt built up in that, and the water retreated back out, and that's uh, more than likely why Ephesus kind of lost its um, clout at the time. It was no longer accessible as a sea trade route. Um, we're going to look at, we're, we're basically going to give the same outline every week, um, so you can kind of follow along. Um, Jesus gives us authoritative introduction um, before he moves on. Um, next one. An all-knowing evaluation. So he evaluates each of the churches, and it's all-knowing because it's Jesus. Um, and then next. Just leave that up. It's fine. Um, we have this appropriate exhortation, and then we're going to go to um, a benediction. So let's just start with this authoritative introduction that we see. Um, and what he writes to the church to Ephesus is that Christ is with his church. Um, he writes this to an angel. More than likely, an angel was a representative spiritual heavenly reality represented in heaven. Each of these churches seemed to have an angel um, that represented it. Um, what we see also in this introduction, that, uh, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, we've already seen at the end of chapter one what those things represent. The seven golden lampstands and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus holds the churches in his hands. He has authority. He has power. He is the one who holds them. It also says that he walks among them. This is intimacy. It's closeness. This isn't a God who just holds authority from a distance, but he walks. It's, and notice it's a, he walks and he holds. This is present tense. He's intimately present with his people, and he holds us. We can't be snatched away. Jesus is sufficient for all that we need as the church, and what he thinks matters, and it matters most. Um, you, you know, like last month, I had to call my brother while I was in Spain on sabbatical and let him know that John Piper was going to be in attendance, uh, like two hours before he preached. And at first you're like, oh, man, that's kind of, because one of your kind of heroes, and you're like, but we had to just remind ourselves, even as elders, like, Jesus is here now, like, today. He's present with us. What he thinks about what happens here is infinitely more important than what any other human being thinks. And so what he writes and what he thinks and how he evaluates us is way more important. Why lampstand imagery? We don't have time to unpack it all today, but if you go back to Exodus 25, um, we see this imagery in the temple, and you have all this Old Testament imagery throughout um, the book of Revelation, but the lampstands represented really the whole temple. They were representative of the entire temple, the present, where God's presence dwelt, where he met his people. And the lampstands were meant to give light, right? We are meant to be, as we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, a city on a hill, a light to the nations, a compelling witness to Jesus and the world. Revelation 11.4 even, you can read that, says we are to stand before the Lord and reflect the light back out to the world. Jesus is among the lampstands, 
We are reflecting the light of Jesus that is there. And so we have this authoritative introduction. It is Jesus who we see here. It is he who holds the lampstands. It is he who holds the stars in his hands, these seven stars, these angels that are there. So we move on then to the all-knowing evaluation. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. You've not grown weary. Amazing, isn't it? It's amazing that Jesus commends them. Let's look at those things first. Ephesus is busy in doing lots of good things. And what's encouraging about that is Jesus knows it. He sees it. He commends it. And be encouraged by that. If no one else sees the work you do, I'm for him. And, and probably the majority of what we do for the Lord is unseen. There's stuff that we do here on a Sunday morning, sure, but surely that's not the extent of all that we do for the Lord. But do you remember even in the Sermon on the Mount, right? We're not to practice our righteousness for those reasons anyway. And he says, what you do in secret, your Father sees in secret. And he'll reward you for that. The Father sees, Jesus sees. And what is he pleased with? He's pleased with our good works. We see that their works, their toil, their patient endurance. Um, they, they weren't giving up. They were working hard. And Jesus commends them for that. Jesus is pleased with their purity. Holiness mattered to them. He says, I know that you can't bear with those who are evil. They weren't capitulating to, to evilness. They weren't tolerating evil amongst their midst. Holiness had mattered to them. Scripture and not the culture was their moral guide. We see that even in how they deal with false teachers. Remember, Ephesus, Paul had spent two years there. He had set up the Hall of Tyrannus there, and churches are being planted out of Ephesus. Ephesus is one of the most important churches during this time. Paul is pastoring this church. Then as he moves on, Timothy comes and pastors that church. Then they're ministered to by John. Like, they have a rich heritage of, of, of teachers that are there. These weren't squishy kind of Christians. These are people who were pure, Holiness mattered to them. Moral, morality mattered to them. Even while under great pressure by their city around them. We see that Jesus is pleased with their dedication. In verse 3, they're enduring patiently. They're bearing up for my name's sake. They haven't grown weary. One commentator says it this way. He says, the Ephesian Christians face special challenges because they refused to bow the knee to the goddess Diana, remember, this is where the temple to Diana or Artemis was. This is one of the great ancient wonders of the world. So loads of people are coming to their city, to the temple, to worship false gods. This is the culture of the city. They're ready to kill Paul because all of the um, silversmiths at the time were losing money because people were stopped going to them to make idols. The economy of their city is being impacted because of the, of the Christian's faithfulness. And they're under pressure. So they refused to bow the knee to Diana or the images of the emperor. And they found themselves maligned, slandered, boycotted, and abused. Not unlike Jewish merchants in Berlin in the 30s, Christians in Ephesus would have been the objects of physical violence, social um, ostracism, economic repression. And yet they endured. They bore up under the load. 
Clearly, Ephesus had been taught well about its predecessors, Paul, Timothy, and John. So these aren't fair-weather Christians at all. And the Lord notices their dedication. We see that Jesus is pleased with their sound doctrine. In verse 2, they tested the apostles, or so-called apostles, and, and they found them to be false. They tested them. How did they test them? They tested them against the Scripture. Are these people true to the gospel? Are they bringing in false teaching? And they found them to be false. In verse 6, it says, uh, Jesus commends them because they hate the works or the practices of the Nicolaitans, as did Jesus. Now, who are these Nicolaitans? Um, They're only mentioned a couple times in the scripture. Um, But what we know from other kind of um, early history and church history, um, it's probably that they were teaching So let me explain, because this is going to come up later in in letters as well. Um, In each of these cities, you had different trade guilds. In each of these cities, um, there were major kind of trades that were there. So there were silversmiths in in Ephesus. Um, And to be a part of uh, these trade guilds, part of what made you a part of that was was offering um, um, sacrifices or, or meats and things like that to the idols and eating that. There was also temple worship. Um, which often in, involved prostit- uh, sex with prostitutes and all of this as part of the worship. And you would be a part of that so that these gods would bless these trade guilds. Um, it seems like the Nicolaitans were coming along and saying, hey, it's cool if you do those things. We know idols are just idols. You can still worship kind of um, the Lord in your heart and kind of privately and yet still kind of go to work and um, you know, offer um, things to idols um, be sexually immoral in the temple, things like that. Those things don't really matter. This kind of um, uh, Gnosticism. It's what really kind of matters in our spirit. What you do with your body doesn't really matter. It's, it's, it, God knows your heart in that way. We have kind of a Christian liberty in that way. And the, and the Ephesians rightly so rejected that and said, no, um, the Christian following um, Christ is with everything. It's with our body. It's with our soul. It's with our mind. It's all of these things together. And Jesus commends them, and it's strong language. He says, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, as, as do I, which I also hate. Which begs the question, do we hate what Jesus hates? Do we even want to admit that Jesus hates things? Um, John pointed out when we were looking at false teachers in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the ways that you point out a false teacher isn't, isn't just by what they say, it's often about what they refuse to say and what they won't say. And so it's easy to get up and tell people that Jesus loves them, that, Jesus, that God is love, that God is merciful and gracious and he's kind and slow to anger. All true. That's all true. But Jesus hates some stuff too. God is love. That is his default. That is who he is at his being. But his anger, his wrath, his hate towards things can be provoked. We don't have to provoke God's love. He is love. But to say that he doesn't have anger or hatred towards certain things that can't be provoked, here there are things that we see that Jesus hates these works of the Nicolaitans. Why is that? He hates because he loves. He gets angry because he is love. 
If you're a parent, you know this, right? There better be things as a parent that you hate because they destroy the lives of the people that you love, right? If there were things that I knew my kids um, were experimenting with, drug addiction or things like that, and I knew that it was going to wreck their life, would I be like, oh, it's fine, no big deal? No, I, hate, I would hate those things. Why? Because of what they are doing to the people that I love. And this is what kindles God's anger. The difference is that God can see everything perfectly. We don't hate the things that God hates often because we don't see them as dangerous to us. We don't see them as leading to death and destruction. We experience them as temporarily pleasurable. But God knows the end. This is why he's helping us think through the end. All sin destroys Jesus knows and sees in ways that we don't without him or that our culture has deceived us into thinking is good when it is actually bad or that our sinful nature blinds us to. So he's pleased with their sound doctrine. He's pleased that they've rejected these things. But then we get to the one thing that he has against them in this evaluation. Verse four, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you first had. He's not pleased with their lack of love. Now, by all outward appearances, this church probably looked pretty healthy, right? They're hardworking. They're bearing up under persevering. Uh, they're persevering under persecution. They've rejected sound, uh, a false doctrine. Um, they seem moral and pure. But they're in danger of becoming a Pharisee church. We learned this, right, from Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount. You can do good things with all the wrong motives. And Jesus doesn't recognize them as good. And in time, this is going to be the death of their church. Somewhere along the way, they lost the right motivation to do the right things. This isn't a church that has a head problem. This is a church that has a heart problem. And here's my, my hunch. I, this might be the one letter of the seven churches that might be most relevant for us. Because we prize the scripture. We recognize its authority. We prize correct doctrine and theology here. But if we have all of those things for all the wrong reasons, and not because of our love for God and neighbor, Jesus, in this letter, says he will remove our status as a legitimate church. Could love for doctrine and moral purity actually create a loveless community? That's the question that we have to ask. And the answer to that, from what I can see, is absolutely yes. It can actually be your love and your passion for doctrinal and moral, moral purity that creates a loveless community. If you just go on to like Christian evangelical Twitter, you see this played out every single day. Christians just attacking each other viciously because they think they have moral high ground. They are the ones who are doctrinally pure. But over and over again, the scripture demands that we keep truth and love together because if you only have one, you lose them both. If you only have truth, but it's not actually in love, 
If it's not motivated by love, it's to win arguments and not to win people. It's full of pride. It's puffed up. It's arrogant. Even though it's technically true, it's not, it's not God's truth in that sense because it's not, it's not with the love of God. And these, this is exactly what's happened to Ephesus. They, they were passionate about the truth, but somewhere along the line, they had lost their love, their motivation for that truth. And you can fall off the cliff on the other side, right? It can all be about love and we care about people and we want to we wanna love people. And so, you know, we can kind of fudge on the truth a little bit because, you know, whatever people want and, and if it makes them happy, then it must be good. And we lose the truth. But that, Jesus would say, that's not actually loving people. <laughs> you're, you're ushering them down the broad road that leads to death and destruction. That's not love. And so we have to hold out both and keep them together. They have to be married together. They have to be the same, the two sides of the same coin. It's truth and love. So many times we've seen churches that spend so much time fighting doctrine and in that process become an angry church. I know guys personally. And I listen to their sermons and I'm like, everything you've said, I would agree with. But man, you seem really angry about it. It doesn't seem like this is coming from a heart of love. And this is what Jesus is warning them of. You've lost the love that you had at first. Now, who's, who's the love for whom is the question. Is it love for people, especially one another? Is it love for Christ? The text doesn't specify. But I think both are objects of love that we have to keep them together. I think it's best to keep them together. I think the Bible keeps them together. 1 John 4, 19 to 21. We love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. They stay together, don't they? And the key phrase is at first. They had lost the love they had at first. We don't have time, but I'd encourage you to go back and read the, uh, Acts 19. See the love that the Ephesians had. This is how Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians. This is Ephesians 1, um, 15. This is what he writes. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. There was a time when they were loving because Paul commends them for it when he writes to them. This that John writes to them is about 30 years later. It only took 30 years. Most of you in the room are older than that or around that age. One lifetime, not even a lifetime. It only took 30 years for them to lose their way. They were marked by zeal and love at their conversion, when the, first, when the church first started, when they heard the gospel, they were marked by that love. Grant Osborne says this. He says, they had lost that first flush of enthusiasm and excitement in their Christian life. They had settled into a cold orthodoxy with more surface strength than depth. The second generation of the church had probably failed to maintain the fervor, the fervor of the first. They had fulfilled Christ's prophecy in Matthew 24, 12. The love of many will grow cold. It's clear that the Ephesus uh, church loved truth more than they loved God or one another. 
This doesn't mean they weren't believers, that they had no love at all, for the commendations of verses 2 and 3 would be impossible in that case. Rather, their early love had grown cold and had been replaced with a harsh zeal for orthodoxy. Is that you? These are the questions we have to ask of ourselves. Has your love grown cold? Is that us? As a church? Because being a Christian is about loving Jesus and one another. Being a faithful church involves loving Jesus and loving one another. A church with right doctrine of Christ, but devoid of a rich fellowship with Christ and a great love towards others is a church that is doomed. It's significant that Paul ends his letter to the Ephesians this way. This is Ephesians 6, 24. He says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. But it appears that love wasn't incorruptible. 30 years later, it had been corrupted. Without love, our labor just becomes drudgery. Endurance just becomes joyless. Our theology produces arrogance. Is our passion for the scripture, for truth, is it fueled by our love for God? Our, is it fueled by our love for other people? Because that is the message of the scripture, right? This is how Jesus says the whole law is summed up. What's the greatest commandment, he gets asked? It's to love God with all that we have and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's how Jesus sums up the entire law. We saw that in, in, in our Sermon on the Mount series. We see Mary of Bethany, who worships Jesus at his feet by wiping her hair, uh, washing her hair. And it's this extravagant love. She breaks open this alabaster jar full of perfume that costs about a year's wages. What extravagant love. You're like, that's a bit extreme. Calm down a bit. But it wasn't. To whom much had been given. There was so much gratitude and love that came pouring out of that. Our endurance is joyful when it's motivated by love. We see this in Hebrews 12. Theology should make us humble and warm and loving. And if it doesn't do those things, then we've, we've understood that theology wrong. Um. I have a, a pastor friend of mine who I admire a lot in the States. And he, he said, he's like, I love uh, Reformed theology. It's Reformed culture that I don't always like. And that's true because often the people who understand the Bible, as we would say correctly, that God has chosen us, that we understand the gospel, that we did nothing to earn God's salvation, that it was his grace and mercy bestowed upon us, that he would elect us even in spite of all of who we are, those people somehow become these frozen chosen. And it shouldn't be that way. It's, it's the, the warmth of the gospel that should kindle our heart. And so let's labor passionately, endure gladly, contend for truth humbly and compassionately. Because without love, we become grumpy, we become self-absorbed, we become arrogant, and we become cold. And Jesus says, it's on that day that the expiration date is stamped on your church. It's in that day that, that you're in decline, that you will wane. We can see this in relationships, right? 
You ever seen that in a marriage that has ended? Maybe some of you have gone through that. We can just kind of coexist. We have to guard against the slow drift of coldness, of going through the motions in our relationship with the Lord. It's possible to affirm all the right things, be doing all the right things, but have all the wrong loves. Soon I'll celebrate 25 years of marriage in December. And um, thanks, a little woo there. And, um, but uh, I remember years seven and eight. We didn't have kids yet. Um, and we had moved from um, where we had met, where our families lived, where we had loads of support systems. And we moved to Michigan, um, to Detroit. And we uh, took new jobs. We both worked at the same church. Um, I was a youth pastor and worship leader. She was uh, the assistant to our pastor. And we both kind of just threw ourselves into um, ministry. And we were working hard. We were toiling. We were doing all these sorts of things. Um, And that was year five of our marriage. We moved up there about five years after we had been married. And in years seven to eight, I just noticed, like, things weren't the same. We weren't fighting a lot. There wasn't a lot of, like, um, tension in our marriage. It just kind of got a bit cold and boring. And, and I said, I just feel like we're more like housemates than we are husband and wife. And it's, it's just because we just stopped investing in our marriage. We were doing ministry. We were working and, and doing um, ministry way more than we probably should have. We had, didn't have a very healthy work-life balance. And all of our kind of friends that we hung out with, all the things that brought us together um, to do things outside of work, weren't there, and so we just filled them full of work. And our conversations with each other were about work, and they were about, you know, paying the bills and mortgages, and, and I, it kind of scared me, because I'm like, this is how people have affairs. It's not always because they hate the other person. It's not always because um, that person annoys them. It's just because they stop caring. They stop investing in. They stop spending time with. They stop pursuing each other. And then that other person comes along, And man, they're kind of funny. And man, they pay attention to you. And man, they all of a sudden seem new and exciting. And the next thing you know. And that didn't happen. There was no other person. But I could see it. I could see this is how it happens. You just kind of grow cold. You stop investing. Stop caring. You let other things squeeze out time. This is how it works, not just in our personal relationships. This is how it works in in our relationship with the Lord as well. The threat to this church wasn't that they all of a sudden took on new heresies. They didn't reject the gospel and start, you know, pursuing prosperity gospel. They weren't, um, you know, listening to the culture. They were doctrinally solid people. They were doing and working for the Lord. But their heart had grown cold. There wasn't any love that was motivating it anymore. And so we have to consider these things. What drives our work for the Lord? Is it motivated by pride or desire for the praise of others as we saw in the Sermon on the Mount? Look at 1 Corinthians 13. This is often read at weddings. Um, it's not really a, a necessarily wrong to do that, but it's, it's not necessarily either um, about... Romantic love. 
Listen to this. This is Paul's way of love. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so I can remove mountains, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want to understand all mysteries, have prophetic powers, be able to like command things to happen and they, and they happen? He says, you can have all of that, but if I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, I'll be a martyr for you, Jesus. But, I have not, but, I, but I, if I don't have love, what have I gained? Nothing. I've gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things. It hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. For prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, that's Jesus, the partial will pass away. He ends it with faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the danger that the Ephesian church was in. They had all of the external power and none of the internal things that mattered. So what drives our hard work? What drives our doctrinal discernment? The bottom line was they stopped obeying the greatest commandment, to love the Lord with all they had and to love other people from the love that flowed out of that. Then we look at the appropriate exhortation. How does Jesus feel about loveless orthodoxy? Well, he says, if you don't hear my word, I will remove your lampstand. It is Jesus who walks among the lampstands. He is the one who holds them in his hand. It is he who can remove them. He can blow it out. He can extinguish that. They would cease to be a church. And what I love about this is Jesus is jealous for them. His passion, his love for them hasn't waned. He's calling them back. Like the prodigal sons. It's the father who's there ready to receive. And he gives us three steps. He gives them three ways uh, to, to do that. The first thing he says to do is remember. Verse five, remember therefore where you have fallen. Remember. Do you remember what it was like when you first fell in love? I had to think harder because it's been longer now. But I remember when I, when I first started to date Sue, I just wanted to spend all my time with her. Like I annoyed my friends because they were like, bro. They were all not, I was the first one to kind of get married. And uh, I didn't want to spend time with them anymore. I just wanted to spend all my time with, with Sue. I would go out of my way to see her. Nothing was inconvenient. I was zealous for her. And that's the way first love is, isn't it? It's passionate, it's fervent, it's disciplined, it's all-consuming. How long has it been since we felt that way about Jesus? Do you remember what it was like? What made you sell all and follow Jesus? If we compare our lives now to where they are then, what's missing? What's missing? Have we stopped paying attention? We stopped investing in that relationship? 
I think the other thing we remember is the gospel, right? In, in chapter 1 of 5, it says, In Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. It's the gospel that he's rehearsing there. We are to remember his gospel. It's his kindness, Romans tells us, that leads us to repentance. We read the verse in 1 John. We love him. Why? Because he loved us first. We remember that. We meditate on the gospel, our need. We feel the weight of our sinfulness, of our shortcomings, of our failings. And then we see Jesus lifting us up out of the muck and mire, laying down his life for us. We kindle our hearts, the, the fire of that, with the gospel. And it causes us to be people who then do the same out of grateful love for God and what he has done for us through Christ. I've mentioned the sermon before, the expulsive power of a new affection. It's going back to that first love of stirring our affection for Christ that expels these other false passions. The second thing he asks them to do is repent. Repent, he says. Think differently. Change. Think differently about our sin. And there's irreligious sin, right? That younger brother kind of going off and wild living kind of sin. That's not what the Ephesians are in danger of. They've rejected false teaching. They're not being pressured. They're not giving into the pressure of their culture. What they're in danger of is older brother sin. Religious sin. Pharisaical sin. Labor is no substitute for love. Purity is no substitute for passion. And deeds, Jesus says, is no substitute for devotion. Jesus wants your heart. He wants you. He doesn't want you doing stuff. Our stuff that we do should flow out of our love. We have to think about our sins of indifference, of religious formalism, of legalistic routine. We turn from false passions. Things, what are the things that make your love for Jesus wane? In that seven and eight year period, we had to stop doing, we had to start doing the things that we did at the beginning. Spending time with each other. Doing things that made us laugh together. Going out on dates and things like that. Stuff that we just kind of let time and work and other stuff kind of squeeze out. We had to start saying no to some other stuff. Good stuff. It wasn't bad stuff that we were replacing it with. We had to say no to good things to be able to reinvest. What are the things that you might have to say no to that dull our appetite for the scripture, that steal away time for prayer? We have to turn away from our own self-reliance and pride. No one wants to go, no one wants to like date someone reluctantly, right? You're like, hey, would you go out with me? I guess. I'm not doing anything else. I mean, it's a free meal, I suppose. Like, no one wants to go on that date. You're like, forget it, right? Or like, can I say this in church, like for married folks and just the married folks, like reluctant sex, no, one, no that's not like, no, you're just like, let's just not, right? You know, it's okay. You're not in the mood, that's fine. Let's, let's not pretend we are. Maybe that's just me. But this is, Jesus wants the same. He wants joyful devotion. Not dutiful, kind of like, uh, trudgery. I gotta go to church. and gotta. Now, there is something about like overcoming our feelings because sometimes you don't feel like doing the right thing and you do it anyway, right? There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying we should always just, if I feel like it, I should do it. You should do things that you don't feel like sometimes. But the underlying foundation of that shouldn't just be duty and drudgery and guilt. There should be joy of who we love 
bubbling up to the surface in that. And that's what we have to remember and repent from. And then the last thing he says is to return or to resume. What were you thinking about when you first came to faith? What were you meditating on? What made your heart sing? He says, do those things again. All these things we could sum up in one word. And it's a word that John talks about extensively in his gospel. Chapters 15 to 17. Abide. Just abide with Jesus. Just spend time with him. Do the things that stir your affections for him. And the things that make those affections wane, we turn away from. Do you love him this morning? Stoke the affections of your heart for him. And then lastly, we end with the attention-grabbing benediction in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is a letter to Ephesus, but it's also for all of us to hear. To the one who conquers, to the one who remembers, repents, returns, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Those who conquer will enjoy the lost privileges of Adam and Eve who are banished and expelled from the garden. Because of their sinfulness, because of the rejection of God, they're banished from that. They, don't, they no longer get to walk in the cool of the evening in the presence of the Lord and eat from the tree of life. Death and sin enter into the world. And you and I are born into that same world of death and sin. But Jesus says there's a way to overcome that. That we can go back to the paradise. We can go back to eating of that tree that we as human beings have been forbidden of. And that happens through another tree, the tree of the cross of Calvary. We start in a garden. We're expelled from that because of our sin. We have creation. We can say decreation, right? Sin and death enter into the world. Things are now decomposing. Jesus comes with redemption, through his cross, through his resurrection. And then we get recreation again. This is what Jesus is promising us. Paradise restored, back in the presence of God. If we'll overcome, we get to eat of the tree of life. Why were Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden? Was it because Jesus didn't want, was it because God was tired of them? I don't want to be around you anymore. No, it's because they couldn't eat of the tree of life. If they ate of the tree of life in their sinful state, they would have been eternally damned. Jesus keeps them from that state so that he can actually provide a way for them to be reconciled to God. That you and I can be reconciled to God through the death and resurrection. And once, that, once we have overcome, when Jesus returns again, we get readmitted back in to eat of that tree of life. To live eternally in the presence of God, physically, resurrected bodies. This is what's on offer. And it's something that if I admit, I don't think about often enough. I just get caught up in my normal everyday kind of life. And Jesus is asking us to step back, remember the big picture, remember where all of this is headed if we're on that narrow path. But what Jesus wants isn't just our works and our deeds. Jesus wants communion. He wants to commune. He wants to abide. He wants us in his presence forever.
And that's what he's calling us to today. May we repent. May we remember. May we return to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us and that you care for us enough, not just to send your son to die, not just to technically make a way, but that you love us enough to want to commune with us, to know us, for us to know you, to experience the love that you have reciprocated. And Father, we just acknowledge it's, it's, it's your kindness that allows this to happen. It's because you've loved us first that we would even have the possibility to love you. And so as we come and we remember the means by which you've provided this grace, your body broken for us, your blood shed for us in bread and wine, we remember that even this meal looks back to the cross, your body broken, your blood shed, but it's also a meal that looks forward to this marriage supper of the Lamb that we're promised where we will get to feast with you. And so may we come this morning um, looking back, but also looking forward. And may those things both inform our present. Father, would even this meal together as we sing and we worship you, as we take bread and wine, may even this time stir our affections for you as we meditate on the gospel, as we meditate on all that you have done to call us your own to count us among your people. Father, I pray that our our love for you would grow day by day, moment by moment. And Father, maybe this may even be the day that someone loves you for the first time, hears and understands your love for them, this invitation to come. Father, we love you.